Hi there, my name's Willie Russo and you're listening to Interview with an Artist, the weekly show where we speak with a range of art world players. A blown up car engine, a suspended driver's license and an offer to paint a portrait or two. This doesn't exactly sound like the genesis for one of the most important exhibitions of our time, but it is. My guest this week is Justine Muller. You may have seen her in your social media feeds recently. Justine was rallying support for the people of Wilcannia. Her call out for donations of food and toiletries saw the Sydney art community get behind her to help collect and deliver a truckload of rations to the small regional community ravished by COVID. Justine's also one half of the artistic duo behind the exhibition, Barker, the Forgotten River. It's a story of the people of Wilcannia and their much loved river known as Barker, or the Darling. It's currently on show at the Maitland Gallery and has been touring for the last three years. It's a multifaceted work that Justine worked on with well-known artist Badger Bates. So how did Justine, an artist from King's Cross, become connected to the people of Wilcannia, a tiny community of predominantly First Nations people over a thousand kilometres away? Well, this is a story and a half, and I'm so grateful to Justine for sharing it with us. Enjoy meeting the very special woman and artist, Justine Muller. How did you get connected to the people of Wilcannia? Uh, my car broke down. <laughs> um, it's true. So I went, I went out. So I, basically I'm a, I'm a woman, right? I'm, I'm a woman. I was by myself. I love, I love to go out into the landscape and to paint directly from the landscape. And, um, and I love like the Australian, like almost semi-desert kind of landscape. It's really the, the colours, the space, like there's nothing like it in the world. You know, it's just so beautiful and inspiring, inspiring to be there just to camp, but also obviously to produce work. So the closest place for me to kind of go that was realistic in New South Wales is Broken Hill, right? It's, you know, it's the, the start of the, like what they call it, the gateway to the outback. And I'd been to um, Mutawindji National Park before with a, an old boyfriend. And so I knew I could always return there, but I wanted to take another, I was looking after someone else's dog and I wanted to travel with this other dog and go out there and as a woman, I wanted the dog so I wasn't alone, you know, for protection. But the nicest places where you can camp are national parks and you can't have a dog. So I'd have to be by myself if I stayed in national park. And I, I'd heard about Fowler's Gap, which is a research centre about, about two, two and a half hours outside of Broken Hill. And it's owned by the University of New South Wales. So they have a lot of um, research like students, science students and stuff that go out and do research, environmental stuff. Um, but they also have an artist community. It's connected to COFA. And I'd read an article about a bunch of artists who'd gone out there, Alan Jones and Elizabeth Cummings and Idris Murphy and this group of artists that I kind of knew and recognised from Sydney. And there's a place called the Ochre Hut, which is connected to the research centre but it's kind of off-road really beautiful but that same landscape we're talking about and I thought 
I want to go there. So I actually went to King Street Gallery and I think I spoke to Amanda Penrose Hart and said, like, how do I do this? And she told me to contact Peter. Peter gave me an email and then, yeah, and then they said, yeah, come out. And so I went and camped and I actually, they, they didn't think I'd last. I said that I wanted to go for 10 days and they said, you won't last 10 days. You know, it's so isolated. And I ended up all together being there for over a month, like just in a swag, cooking on a fire, painting every day, writing, reading. I had to travel two and a half hours into Broken Hill to buy, like to buy supplies. And then there was a little tiny hut where I could like put, like cook basics um, in. So there was a little fridge thing in there, like es esky and solar and a drop toilet and a shower, but that was it. And um, yeah, and I, so I didn't plan to spend over a month there. I actually went out with Mira Whale and uh, Juz Kipson came and met us, but they were there for the first like seven days and then they left and then I was going to stay another week by myself and um, on a trip into back into Broken Hill, my car broke down and I had to hitch into town with a truck driver and I stayed with his family for about five, five days trying to work out what the hell I was going to do because I had very little money and didn't kind of know how I'd get back to Sydney. And he took me to a mechanic on the edge of town. The mechanic's name was Denzel. And by that time, I was, I, the other dog that I'd been looking after had gone back to Sydney. And he said, oh, I hear you're out here by yourself. And he said, I can, I can get you a new engine. But he said, I also think you should take this dog. And he showed me this little dog that was curled up in a ball and it had been um, it had been quite badly beaten and treated, and he'd rescued it a week before I turned up. And he said, "I'll fix your car, and in the meantime, take another car." So I went back to the campsite with my dog, which is now the dog that I have, and I named him after the mechanic. And then I'd ring him. I used to have to I'd have to climb this mountain to get reception, and every couple of days I'd ring Denzel, the mechanic, and I'd say. You know, is the car fixed yet? And you'd say, call in another couple of days. And so eventually the car was fixed. And by which time I'd been out there by myself on the land for over four weeks, like, and just cooking on a fire, sleeping in a swag, like painting. Like it was an incredible experience. And, um, yeah, and I'd gone to the Aboriginal Land Council and asked to speak with an elder woman and said, I'm like, whose land am I on? And am I welcome there? And, mm -hmm. and, and that was my first kind of connection with um, any, any First Nations people from out there. And she was from Wuliakali tribe, but she was married into the Barkindji tribe, which is in Wulkanya. So I did that, had an, it was an incredible experience. The work from that ended up, I ended up having a show with that back in Sydney later on. But anyway, that that same car that the mechanic fixed, that engine blew up a second time. The new engine blew up. But the second time it blew up was when I was in Wulkanya. And that's oh. how I ended up in Wulkanya. Sorry, that's very long. No, I love it. No, and every piece of that puzzle is necessary, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so I ended up. Basically in Wulkanya, 
um, yeah, with the engine broken and this car, and I'd spent all the money that I had, I'd already spent on the first engine. So then I was stuck in Wokanya and it, it's slightly more complex. I also, so I got to Wokanya and I realized that I'd lost my license because I'd only been on my keys. I didn't have points. So I lost my license for three months. I'd been driving for a month on, on no license and I had another two months to, to wait. So I basically I sat in Wokanya to, to ride out that space till I got my license back. And then when I got my license back and I went to drive out of Wokanya and back to Sydney, that's when the second engine blew up. So basically by that time I kind of started to know Wokanya and yeah, and then I got stuck. And while I was stuck there, I'd said to, I'd made really good friends with Uncle Badger Bates and I was stuck and I said, oh, like, maybe I can paint your portrait. And because we didn't have access to an art shop, you know, together we found like an old piece of tin. And so I painted his portrait on the tin. And that was the start of this huge project that kind of developed and grew. And um, and then I, I was, I got also a, around the same time, I also got invited by a photojournalist called Andrew Quilty, who's Ben's cousin, um, who was a friend of mine in Sydney, but he'd set up a um, a group called Everyday Australia, which was on Instagram, and it was kind of, it, there were groups all over the world, so you have Everyday South Africa, Everyday, uh, okay. you, and they're like kind of sharing stories that maybe the mainstream media left, and Andrew could see that I was out there, and he said, do you want to join do you want to be one of the members and kind of post stories about Wolkanya so I started to take photos and post little stories that were kind of little positive stories about Wolkanya because of course Wolkanya had this terrible reputation for a long time of being a place that you didn't want to stop and the Wolkanya that I discovered was incredibly welcoming and warm and kind and very um, generous with sharing their their culture with me so yeah, so it's, I was, and so that what happened because I was posting for Everyday Australia and because working with an Indigenous community is very sensitive for, mm. for understandable yeah. reasons, I would go to Uncle Badger whenever I had a photo, a story, I would go to Uncle Badger, I'd say, listen, I've taken a photo of Annie Juni and we were talking about this and I've got this beautiful photo, you know, these are the words that I want to put with it. Is that okay to say? And he would ultimately say, yes, I think that's great. Or even better, he would say, um, maybe you want to change this or maybe you want to add this. And then he would tell me a little story about, you know, when he was a kid and they grew up on the river and how that would relate to something that I'd been doing later that day. And so this beautiful kind of respectful friendship started to develop between us of this exchange of where I was able to do positive stories for his community and he was able to impart kind of knowledge with me. And so, yeah, so by the time I started painting his portraits and doing this other work, there was already this beautiful synchronicity happening between us. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, that is so awesome! <laughs> that is so awesome. The the show that you've got at the moment 
Barker, the Forgotten River, that's currently, it's been out for a little while now. Um, how did, did the two of you kind of just, I mean, I know it's, it sounds like you kind of started working together, but who or at what point did you go, okay, let's make this something else and take it out of here? So, like I said, I started to do, the first portrait I did was of Uncle Badger on an old piece of tin. And then I saw this wonderful character called um, Crow Wilson. Everyone's got nicknames in in Wilcania. I remember ringing my parents and being like, oh, yeah, I was hanging out with Horse and Crow and Badger and (laughs) (laughs) But um, so Crow was the second person I, I painted and his family, actually, the Wilson family, ended up adopting me and they're just amazing. Like I speak to them every week and they're, they're just beautiful, but they're the, the, one of the brothers, his name was Waku. So Waku in Barkindji translates to crow in English. So he got his nickname from playing in a puddle when he was a little boy and this crow used to come and sit with him. So that was his name, but he'd wear really bright colors. And so I painted him and then I painted Ani Nairi, who's also just the most beautiful soul. And then one of my photographs that I took actually got into the Moran Prize. Mm. And my car was still broke. My, my car never actually made it back. My <laughs> <laughs> <That> car <laughs> is now. <laughs> so I caught a coach from Wolpania back to Sydney to go to the Moran Prize. And I left my dog with a teacher out there to look after because I couldn't take him on the bus. And I went to the Moran Prize, which was amazing to get my photograph in there. Um, it was called Town in Mourning, and it was about, you know, the incredibly sad reality of the low life expectancies in the in the community. And again, you know, I went to the family member of the area of the grave that I photographed to say, these are my words, this is my photo, it's in a prize, is it okay? So everything was like, you know, very respectful, it, it, it really. Was very respectful, yeah. but it was rewarding on both ends. By doing things the right way, you know, that's why I've been able to continue to do what, I, what I've done for so long. So when I was back in Sydney, um, I, did, I stayed in contact with Uncle Badger in particular, and he rang me and he said, what are you doing with the portraits that you did out here? And I said, well, you know, I'm a white fella, like... It's not really my culture. I don't really know what I can do with that that work. You know, um, I love doing it, but I hadn't. I didn't really have a bigger vision for it. I was kind of stuck there and painting. And he said, "No, I, I think what you're doing is important." And he invited me to come back. He said, "Why don't you come back, and we'll collaborate. We'll work together." Which you know, how can I turn down an invitation like that? And um, of course, when I went back. This was probably very obvious to Uncle Badger at first, but it wasn't for me. Um, but when I went back and the more we discussed culture and what was happening and politics and everything, it was really obvious that the most important thing was the river. You know, that's the thing that we needed to talk about. And it was it was easy because everything relates to the river. The people relate to the river, the culture relates to the river, their stories, their history, you know. And their future relates to whether the river is healthy or not. So then that collaboration started. And, of course, I, I as, a, as a non-Indigenous person and an outsider coming in, I very much was like, how, how do I use my position 
to work in a respectful way, but also use it to push and to get things heard and seen that aren't being seen. And one thing that obviously wasn't being heard were the voices of the people themselves. So rather than the paintings just being my paintings and my interpretation, I went around to all the houses and I just with my iPhone, I sat with them and I said, listen, this, these are going to be in an exhibition about the Darling River, which in Barkindji is the Barker. So this is about the Barker and saving the Barker. Uncle Badger and I are doing it together. And I want to record your memories of what the river means to you. And so, again, it's this beautiful exchange where I'm so privileged because by doing this, I also get so much out of it. And I would sit with them and I would listen to them telling me stories of the Barker and how their memories when they were younger and it was healthy and how they've watched it progressively get get sick and worse. And so those audio recordings then were uh, edited and put with the portraits that hung. And so people can stand in front of the portrait and listen to the voices directly. And and then um, Uncle Badger, obviously, he was making, he's making prints. He does beautiful lino cuts. And he would tell stories that I'm not allowed to tell, you know, stories of his greening and his culture. Um, and yeah, and he did sculptures and we did, it, it, so all together we worked three years in making that exhibition and it's been touring now for over three years and it all started with a broken down car. <laughs> um, but the reason that it's so beautiful is because it is organic. Like it feels yeah. like I didn't go and say, I'm coming and I'm going to make this mm. exhibition about your river and I'm going to help you. I was like, my car's broken down and I'm stuck <laughs> and I need your help. And they helped me and then it kind of, I've been able to in little ways give back. Yeah. I haven't been able to see it in person. I've just been like trawling it online and I, I saw the um the footprints, the clay footprints. Yeah. And I was listening to you speak about it in one of the, um, one of the videos and you were saying, you know, you went around to every house and yeah. that the youngest was like a three month old and that the eldest was in their nineties. And I just got such this visceral response to it because you know, when you step in mud in a bare, in your bare feet, yeah. you get this kind of like, Oh, oh. And then I was listening more to the video and um, someone was talking about how that in the cave paintings, it's handprints, but they're river it's a river community or it's a river people. So that's the footprints feed into that. And it just kind of all, I thought, oh my God, it's such a big, beautiful kind of connection, right? And I I wonder how did everyone feel giving you their footprints? So it was actually Murray Butcher, who's um, another beautiful man in, in Wolcania who I made friends with. And he's, he's relatively young. I think he's probably in his mid to late 40s but he's very knowledgeable and he's kind of been a teacher of the language because okay. other language is so important but like uncle badger he was brought up by his grandmother so that's why he was imparted with so much knowledge okay. um but yeah so i went to him and i said oh i want something that everyone can can mark and i was like maybe i could get muscle shells or something and he said no like you're saying he said Everyone knows the handprint in the cave. You know, it's such a symbol of First Nations people. But he's like, my people were river people and they left their footprints in the in the banks of the river. 
like ancient deeds of their connection back to the river and he's like why don't you do that and of course the clay itself was taken directly from the riverbed so it's like yeah it's this beautiful metaphor and stories and everything's connected and a beautiful like again the collab not possible without the collaboration so by that time the community had got to know me because it's pretty rare for a city to, I know. <laughs> to have come and I was you know I was living there by choice I most of the whitefellas that live in Wolkanya you know they're teachers or policemen or they're um you know nurses and they're, and they're, they're living, posted there yeah they're posted there and they're doing and a lot of them are doing amazing jobs but they live there's automatic like that segregation that often happens. Mm -hmm. So they're living in housing that's specifically for them. That's kind of a bit gated. And whereas because my car broke down and I had no money, I actually like just live. I lived in an old house that someone had let me live in who wasn't there, like this old guy. And he's like, you know, I want if someone's there, it's kind of security for me because it might not yeah. get broken into. And so yeah. I stayed there. And I ended up volunteering at the radio station. And so everyone, the elders would hear me on, on the radio. <laughs> it was like, I could say, they called me DJ Jazzy. It was insane. And I thought, because <laughs> I grew up in a, I grew up in a pub and we grew up with like a lot of old jazz, New Orleans jazz. And I'm thinking, I can do this. No idea. They love country music. I had no idea about country music. I didn't know what I was doing, but I'm, I'm sure they, they had a laugh listening to me most days. So basically, by the time that project happened, which is probably, you know, two years in of me going back and forth, I had made an announcement on the radio that this is what we were doing. I would put a little article in the local paper saying, as you would know, you know, I'm the girl with the dog and I'm working with Uncle Badger and I'm collecting clay and it's going to be about the river and I'm going to come around. And so I had to, I had to need all this clay, these buckets of clay. And again, Uncle Badger had helped me get it to make sure that I didn't get it from a place that was maybe sacred mm. or where I wasn't meant to. So, and then I spent <laughs> days and days <laughs> needing this bloody clay that was like, full of like stinky water and broken bits and just and I had to I had to try to get the bubbles out and then I'd roll each piece roughly to the shape of a foot and I'd cut I cut up all these pieces of cardboard, laid down cardboard, wrapped the cardboard with glad wrap, then laid the piece down on that, then wrapped that up with glad wrap and then loaded my cars with trays of these wet pieces of clay drove around to so I went to the primary school I went to the the Mali and the mission like the different areas of Wolkanya and I'd pull up and I'd be quite shy and I'm like I'm here to I'm here to get your footprint and I also and then I'd like sit down in the dirt and like literally I'd have to push their toes into the clay and then with an old <laughs> stick I'd like trace around their feet and then, of course, like you said, the clay would be, you know, like wet and dirty, right? So then I'd get, I had like a damp cloth and I'd like get pushed and I'd wipe like their feet clean afterwards to be respectful. 
I'm sure they must have thought I was absolutely mad. That is gold. Oh my god. And, yeah, and so then I take I had to take that that clay, the footprints, back to my house. And I lived in this old house that used to be a brewery. So underneath was a cellar. And underneath it's much cooler, like it's about 10 degrees cooler, like dug dugouts. And so I would I'd go down and I had this cellar just full. I ended up with over 300 footprints, all different sizes, and I had to slowly um, let it dry out. So I would take like the plastic off little by little so that it okay. didn't dry too quickly and, and crack. And then obviously then I had to get all those footprints fired and then I had to travel them out to Broken Hill. But I wanted I wanted the clay to be raw. Like I wanted it to have imperfections. I wanted it to to crack and have different colours and little bits of pebble and you know, luckily I wanted it like that because I was gonna get it perfect. But that's for me the most beautiful part of it is that that rawness. Yeah. Yeah. So what did they think? I think they thought it was beautiful. I think they appreciated what I was doing, but I'm also sure they probably thought I was completely bonkers. This crazy girl from Sydney wants us all our footprints. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, it sounds like it's been such a big, it was such a big part of your life and then the pulling it all together. And then what was that feeling like seeing it all in and displayed? It, it was... It was an incredible feeling, surreal. I think the most beautiful feeling was it opened in Broken Hill originally, which was over three years ago now. And at the time we were told that um, not only did we have the, the most people that had come to an opening, but we actually had the most like Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And there were some, some people, like one particular family, these elders, um, Arnie Nairi and Scratchy, I painted Arnie Nairi and I recorded her and Scratchy's voice and they and their footprints were in there as well and stuff. And they travelled like the two hours from Broken Hill to be there for the opening night. So for me, like seeing it all out there was amazing, but to see that response and to be given that, that honour to, you know, like you often hear of artists who can't even put the sound of a didgeridoo or a clapstick in because of cultural reasons. So I'm very aware that to do an exhibition on that level with their images, with their voices, in collaboration with one of the elders is just, I mean, it's just amazing. And it's still touring, like three years later. And we've never been given funding. We haven't we haven't received any grants. It's just, it's just been purely like us knocking on doors and sending emails and word of mouth and people getting behind us and going this is amazing and wanting to see it go further um and the other thing that was amazing about it was being a relatively unknown artist and working with uncle badger who's so respected obviously i was able to have this bigger vision and be able to see it through you know because I couldn't have had that. Like I went into the gallery and I was like, yeah, I'm going to collect all these footprints and I want to do a river of footprints. And normally at my level, they would have gone, yeah, right, like we're not going to give you that opportunity. But because <laughs> I was showing with Uncle Badger, they were like, yeah, do what you want. So I was able to 
like let my imagination and my vision go far and wide and really and then that support from Uncle Badger was just incredible you know just to give me that confidence so yeah down to your question it's oh my feels god surreal it's feels yes surreal. I like so I wonder like what do you do now <laughs> <laughs> like are you kind of just like um I don't know I don't know what I do next now <laughs> yeah um it does feel a bit like that sometimes because I mean outside of that I've continued to have I've had a solo show like every year for like six years and those have been you know paintings that are like landscape slash abstracty kind of works that are more commercial and I do enjoy doing them like I enjoy painting um but I almost do that in order to do things like Barker the totally you know yep um I right now I'm I've been um because I've been locked down in King's Cross which is very different to rural Kenya um, I started to I started to look at my local area and look at local characters in this area, and there's these like amazing, like the last of this era from when the 60s and 70s when the cross was like the red light district, and it was at the forefront of you know the the gay scene and. And there was there was so much happening here, and that those characters are slowly disappearing as Kings Cross, like the rest of Sydney, is being gentrified. And they say that when you do a painting, it's always there's always an element of a self-portrait in that work. And I actually grew up. I'm living in Kings Cross now. It's Potts Point, but I'm really living in Kings Cross. I'm like, I can see the Kings Cross station from my apartment. Um, but I, I grew up in Woolloomooloo, which is, you know, a 10-minute walk away. And I actually grew up above um, the East Sydney Hotel. So I grew up above a bar. And one of my very earliest memories was sitting on the lap of a drag queen. Um, so, you know, I had this amazing extended family of aunties and uncles. And I, I grew up with a lot of characters, like my, my sister's godfather was um Ronnie Arnold who was an African-American dancer who came over here with West Side Story and never left and you know wow. um he he ended up being one of the first people he, he helped start NASDA and he studied Aboriginal dance and kind of brought contemporary black American dance to Australia and you know he was amazing. And then my godfather was Jack Mundy, who was the famous activist that saved a lot of this area. And so to answer what am I doing now, this kind of started because I was locked down in this area, but I was like, well, this feels like, it does feel like a self-portrait of me because these characters are part of who I became and influenced me even subconsciously from such a young, young age. So... Yeah. I've had this amazing opportunity to kind of see, I, I just painted a portrait of um, someone who was the original lay, in the original lay girls. Oh, wow. Um, and so, you know, I, I went over and she's giving me albums and we're going through photos of, you know, from when she was born as a little boy and then her transition and then her time in lay girls and, and you know, really, amazing stories like that I, I met another another woman who 
uh, one in AO, and she's um, she's a the best term to say a working girl. She's and she's still a working girl today. She's in her sixties. Okay. She started okay. as a lawyer, and she gave me a tour. We walked around King's Cross, and she was like, you know, that was the first brothel, and this was the office where we did like human rights work, and during the AIDS pandemic. She was the first one to um, to get them to put condoms into to brothels to make oh. it safer conditions for the girls. And and again, we were like in the 60s and 70s in Australia, we were leading the way. You know, women were one of the first to get votes. We had the Mardi Gras, which was one of the biggest gay festivals in the world. You know, speaking to these guys, I mean, these, like, we were so progressive. I meant to see where we are now. You know, my godfather, the green bands. And so I feel like taming these people, it's like important to remind us where we've come from and what we've done and to celebrate like colour and diversity because I feel like Sydney used to be known for that. And it's really, I find it really depressing to watch where we're going politically. Yeah, I I don't think you're alone in that. (laughs) Thank you for sharing all those stories because it's really fascinating. And I think it's, you are recording a history things of this country's past and you are doing it in a way, like you say, that it's not depressing, but it's like a celebration. Absolutely. Yeah. And remember, you know, like, remember our past good and bad. Mm. That's, that's so important. And to have respect for each other. And yes. There's some, I, I think there's been something nice about being a girl because as a woman, I was kind of vulnerable going into the community. And yeah. so people go, were you dangerous? Was it dangerous for you in the outback? And I'm like, well, in a way, because I was a woman my, by myself, elders kind of get around you, people look mm. out for you. And there's, and they, you know, we have a gentleness that people mm. open up to us more, I think. Yeah. So I think there's definitely positives about you know, being, yeah. being a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the first piece you sold? I did. I started doing life drawing when I was about 12 years old because my mum was meant to pick me up and she was working in the bar and ended up leaving me at this daycare centre. And the daycare centre ended up being an adult's like art class and I ended up doing so they and then I, I I started drawing and they were like she's really good and they said to my mum just you know she can join our class if she wants so I was really young and then after a couple of weeks they said to my mum we're going to start doing like drawing is that okay and my mum obviously being very open-minded said okay so so I started doing like life drawing when I was yeah about about 12 years old <laughs> and I, I brought my drawings back home once and home was a pub and there was actually a guy called Des I don't know if you remember Des Renfield he was like an oh. English swimmer he swam like yes. the English channel or something he was yep. just sitting in the bar with his wife and he wanted to buy one of my life drawings which was this big portrait of a naked woman on a piece of butcher's paper and my mom but my mum wouldn't let me sell it because she said, no, no, I've got to keep it. And, of course, it ended up, you know, in a box in the cellar and we've never seen it again. <laughs> but that was, so that would have been my first. That would have been your first sale. would have been my first sale. <laughs> um, but I, I ended up uh, showing, like, 
I just drew a lot. And my very first boyfriend had a cafe and he said, why don't you let me put these, we'll frame them and we'll put them up in the cafe and see how you go. And so that's kind of where it started. So they, and then I sold quite a bit and I was like, oh, this is. I could maybe do this. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do to get out of a creative funk? Uh, Oh, my. If, if I'm really honest, the adrenaline of, of deadlines <laughs> just forces you out of it, right? Like if you have a lot on, you know, you can't procrastinate. You know, you've got to, you've just got to push through. Otherwise, you don't have the results and you don't have the work at the end. Yeah, saying that, it's probably not a good, I'm sure there's better ways to get out than just going like, oh, my God, I've got to do this. <laughs> You're like, yeah. Um, who's your biggest fan? You know what? Outside of my my family and my close friends, of course, I have to say it goes back to obviously doing such a big project with that and having Uncle Badger give me that support was just incredible, you know. And that was a huge, you know, when I've had when I have self self doubt, I have to kind of stand back and go, I can't be that bad, you know, because. I'm getting to show alongside Uncle Badger and he gave me that respect and honour to show with him as an equal so that, yeah, I think outside of friends and family, Uncle Badger. Yeah. How do you deal with your inner critic? I don't. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm terrible. I have that, what do they call it, imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. I often I'll, I'll, I'll get into an exhibition, like a prize, and I'll, I'll turn up and I'll be so worried. I'll think, oh, they're going to hang the work like in a little bit. Once they've seen it, they've changed their mind and realised they made a mistake and they'll they'll put it like out the back or I've done this exhibition River, River on the Brink, which was up at SH Irving Gallery, and I'd submitted three really big landscape, abstract landscape works and a series of photographs. And I'd convinced myself that they would have decided that they'd either only show the photographs all the paintings to be nice to me and they would have not and then of course I turned up and they were like you know right at the forefront when you walk through the doors but I I think just you just push through it like and I think I think I think having it's a fine line between it being healthy to have doubt and to push yourself on always try to do better and to you know to um second guess your work and to really you know, there's that fine line and it being unhealthy where you can destroy stuff or where you can get anxieties and, and worry yourself stupid about things that you can't change. So um, I think we, we all have it to an extent. It's just keeping it in check so that it's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. If you could spend one day in the studio with any other artist, dead or alive, who would it be? Well, a lot of the people that first come to mind me that I admire as painters a lot of them are males and I just think maybe I'd go back in time and be one of the boys with them but I don't know if I'd want to go back in time and be a woman amongst those oh no no like you know we've got mistresses going to mental asylums and the affairs and you know it's hard enough being a woman today and getting acknowledged <laughs> so um yeah I I don't know maybe 
maybe I'd go to a Andy Warhol party and hang out with Yoko and John Lennon and just a lot of incredible minds. And because being an artist, it's not just about the making of work for me. I think it's also the engaging with creative thinkers. You know, that's the beautiful thing. And um, yeah, so just being at a at a, an Andy Warhol party for a night with all those creatives would be pretty amazing, I reckon. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably have a lot of modern day artists going, oh, yeah, I'd do that one. <laughs> um, what's one thing in your studio you can't do without? Charcoal. I yep. think, like, on top of everything, I um, to start with, um, I, I feel like I'm mainly a drawer. Drawing is the thing that just the starting point for everything. And I love charcoal, yellow charcoal, and some thick paper. Yeah. Yeah. What was your last art store splurge? I can be a bit indecisive. So the, I went and brought a canvas, a big canvas for one of these portraits that I did. And and then the following day, I, I went and brought another canvas the same size. <laughs> But I just, I changed my mind and instead of, I don't like, I find it really hard to start on white. Often with like abstract worktop and when I've gone out into the kind of desert, I've often mixed up like earth pigments and things to start the grounding. And like when I did those portraits, they were on tin, so there was something there. But I I recently, I've started to work on to canvas because it's really expensive to work on paper and framing and everything so it's like I really need to push myself to do more works onto onto canvas but I still find the white canvas daunting so I've been working onto like linen raw linen that's uh, just yes. clear primed and then you can still let that that ground come through and again you can draw onto it and leave a bit of the charcoal like that those instinctive marks Whereas if you leave that just on the white, it kind of feels like that's something that hasn't been finished. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I, w- I brought a white canvas, changed my mind, went back the next day, <laughs> bought a linen cap, and the white canvas is still sitting there. <laughs> one day I will, I'll figure out something with you. <laughs> um, one last question. Where would you like to see your work take you over the next couple of years? It's hard because, like you said, like, Back of the Forgotten River was such a massive part of my life. But I guess all my work is a reflection on what I'm doing at the time. So as long as I keep doing interesting things and meeting interesting people, then hopefully I'll keep making work that's interesting. And just to be able to to live off off my my art, like which I do now. <laughs> with not a lot of money but I do do it like it's what it's the only thing that I do and I think that's it's only every now and then you have to kind of step back and go geez I'm so lucky you know we're such a small percentage that get to do what we love full time so as long as I can just keep making work and and living off it and doing interesting things and meeting amazing people then yeah I'm happy Oh, my God. Justine, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the interview with an artist. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thanks for supporting arts. You know, it's so important. I appreciate it.